Okay, we're back. Episode 2 of Season 5. Let's roll the tape. Okay, so this is Unstandardized English. I am your host, Dr. J.P.B. Gerald. On this podcast, we seek justice for the racially, linguistically, and neurologically minoritized. And uh, two of those, really all three of those are going to come into play today. We're talking about speech-language, quote-unquote, pathology again, or speech-language therapy with my friend, Rafi Feliciano, who is a speech-language... I mean, the license says speech-language pathologist, so... Um, we're going to talk about it in her work and, um, you know, some of the ways her kids are are stigmatized and um, some of the ways she tries to work against that stigmatization and so forth. Otherwise, you know, again, I'm recording this before I found out whether or not my book actually wins the award for the BA, the British Applied, the British Academy of Applied Linguistics 2023 Book Prize. So you're certainly going to find out in whatever episode I record after I find out. Um, or maybe you won't hear anything, and that'll mean I lost. Um, and uh, by now, I should know whether my next book proposal was accepted also, by the time you hear this, at least. So, you know, there's that. I w- I'm a sad thing, you know, it's pro- I used to promote my show on X, and I still do, because the account still exists, but it's a shame that that's such a wasteland now, and, you know, trying to promote it on Instagram doesn't really work, because I don't have, like, a influencer or creator account I put it on LinkedIn but like not every episode there is really you know work appropriate right it's not that this is sexual but you know I do curse and I let my guests curse and um, so I guess it's gonna have to be that I don't know Maybe I'll stop cursing, but I don't want to. Uh, so anyway, this is this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Please support the show on Patreon if you like it. Um, and otherwise, um, you know, uh, hopefully you enjoy the work and uh, find the episode compelling. And as ever, it goes better when it's somebody who's already my friend and Rafi is my friend. So I'm glad to have her here. me so yeah tell the people at least to the extent that you want to who you are sure uh, my name is Rafi Feliciano um, I'm a speech language pathologist um, relatively new to the field um, I currently work at a school um, but tons of um, school experience um, as you know we both taught English in Korea so um, there's a lot of that um, and yeah and I'm really Excited to be here. <laughs> well, good, good. So, what the, the episode that is called "Fixing the Fixing of Kids" because you know I said this with, with the episode I did with Doctor Bray a couple of years ago about how just in the name, right? The right. field is basically presuming that there is some. It's like something is wrong. Let's figure out what it is. Right. Right. And I think that there's a couple of ways to go about these sorts of things because like in my last job, because like the name does not determine what you do, right? Like you can actually be doing things to help and support students, even if the name is that, or the name could be better and you could be doing bad stuff, right? Right. Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't change the name. I'm just saying the name isn't everything. In fact, I think that a lot of the time with equity – people are like, oh, we can change the name. Like, you know, Black Lives Matter Plaza or something, right? Um, right. I'm not saying oh. I'm not saying don't do that. Right. But you gotta actually change the thing. And I'm gonna get, I'm gonna make a point and then, you know, you can say what you want about it. Um Yeah. Is that like I think about something where the name is not inherently stigmatizing. Right? Which is right. certainly true of like just the phrase English teaching is not inherently stigmatizing, right? Obviously, some of the categories people get placed in for English teaching are stigmatizing, but like the, the phrase English teaching is not stigmatizing, but then you can obviously do it in a stigmatizing way. Um, and I think that one of the issues is that um, 
I was trying to say in my last job, we did something called a needs analysis. Now, a needs analysis can does not have to be stigmatizing, right? right. But like a growth and grows. Yeah, yeah. You know, someone someone's needs are not necessarily <laughs> problems, right? To be fixed. Right. To me, the issue comes when you identify a need, right? Which again it is not in itself a harmful thing to do. In fact, you do need to do that. Uh, but that need within the field or within a person's practice becomes the problem is this is within the person, right. right? And that the changes that need to happen are entirely within the person. Does that mean you cannot help the person do things differently? Of course not. That is not what I'm saying. But um, that it, it, so much blame gets placed on the person or their culture or their family or whatever, and very little is done with the system to truly um, – and, again, this is another naming thing. Accommodation is the legal term, right, for a lot right. of things. So I, I'm not going to say that the word is bad, but it, it still – it feels more like we're tolerating these people rather than actually supporting them. Right. Oh, there's – yeah, there, there there was a lot there, and I want to, like, respond to all of it, but I didn't want to interrupt you also. So, um, yeah, I've um, I've talked about this with um, Dr. Brea also about how the name itself in pathologizing is problematic in that it's with the intent of, quote, fixing the student or fixing the client – um, but like you said, also, um, everyone does have needs. It's, it's normal to have needs, um, and normal to need help with something because we're always, we're all growing. We're all trying to be better at things. And it just so happens that these kids have certain problems with, um, understanding certain things, certain things or reaching a certain, um, grasp of the curriculum, which is what unfortunately, is the number one thing in schools is, oh, we have to meet the curriculum despite what um, their needs are because there's that standard to be upheld. Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> what else are there? There's just, like, so much to unpack there. Yeah, like, um, what's um, what's something that we can – specifically focus on first you think well i think that i mean it's interesting what you said about the curriculum right because again even the curriculum itself doesn't have to be bad right you know like i right you know um it's just the expectation that right, exactly. all the kids have to reach that certain curriculum oh what i was going to say is mm -hmm. when it comes to language be it in terms of speech language therapy or whatever, or versus language teaching, like I did in my past. And I still, when I do adjuncting, I'm not teaching the language, I'm teaching teachers, but you get what I'm saying. Right. Um, to me, the only thing that matters is that you understand each other. The whoever, uh, agreed. Whatever two people or, or several people are communicating. Agreed. And sometimes, like it would be foolish of me to say, that it's impossible for a person who's marginalized to not be able to get across what they want. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, of course, like even I cannot always get to the point I'm trying to get to. And it helps me to practice and, and develop certain tactics or whatever. Right. Um, no matter how much time I've spent writing and, and, and building up my skills and so forth, like I could always be better. Right. So, you know, people get, because you know how academics are, they get very doctrinaire and they're like, oh, we should never, all the blame must go on the system. I'm like, yeah, okay, I get what you're saying, but like, we can help people communicate. Like, that is not, like, sometimes people really do struggle to communicate. Like, that's an actual thing, yeah. right? Um, You know, various forms of disfluency and things like that. You know more about this than I do. But it's uh, it's that we are asking these folks who are, First of all, inherently marginalized by having a disability, but also depending on what the, what other groups they tend to be in, um, we're making them go like 95% of the way and everybody else doesn't have to go more than a foot, right? right. And that to me is the issue. I, I, I don't know 
it's a metaphor, right? I don't know what meeting halfway would be. That's not, I don't know if you could be, it's, it's never going to be exactly 50-50 or something like that. But right. it just, it, the, the, the onus cannot be entirely on the people who are marginalized to fit the standards so that the people with more power don't have to take one extra second to try to understand what they're saying. Exactly. And it gets a little bit nitpicky at some point. Um, and that's something that I've been really trying hard to do from the inside, so to say, is um, there's these kids that I get and on their IEPs, their goals are are grammar goals. And OK, like I, I understand that there are some students who might have that lacking in understanding of um well, this is something that I've never even encountered, you know, like I, I could understand a grammar goal if they're not saying, like you said, like the, the number one thing is that we want to communicate and understand each other, a mutual communication. And if they can do that already, then um, I don't see that there's necessarily a need to focus on that particular, quote, deficit, which is what they want us to do. They want us to think of it as a deficit. Um, but if it's something like, um, especially if it's influenced by their culture or their um, home language or whatever, there's always this emphasis or emphasis on um, like their their morphemes or um, they they didn't do a plural s. Like okay, but you still got what they said. They said two apple. Okay, we know that there's two of them and they're apples. So I don't know why there's like a need to emphasize on that per se when that's their goal when there's other things we can work on too, like um, like their comprehension. I think that's like the most important thing. And also the thing that people don't realize that speech therapists do is also is the language component is component is always neglected or disregarded. They don't get that. Um, so I don't know. Um, I've, I've spoken with you about this, too, like the the idea of speech language pathologist. Like, I don't necessarily believe that what we are doing is pathologizing. However, on a more like personal, um, on a more personal, personal, um, I don't want to say like. It's it's better for me personally if I introduce myself as speech language pathologist, because then um, that kind of brings more respect, I guess. And it's already like I, I get that like speech language pathology is a field that is dominated by white women. <laughs> what was it like? Ninety seven percent white women for speech language pathologists. But um, for me, as someone who is not white. But also, I don't know, just women in general don't really get that respect, especially um, in any in any professional field. So to be like, hey, this is what my job sounds like and it sounds important, then I feel like they listen to what I have to say more um, and what I have to recommend for for their child or their student. Like, hey, actually, I actually know what I'm talking about. But overall, I I agree that pathologizing isn't necessarily what we do, but it's what we, what I personally use as a backbone so that they realize what I'm trying to do is help their student. Yeah. So first of all, I have this little autopilot on here that's supposed to be recording, which okay. means I always forget to press the actual button. So okay. recording in progress. <laughs> uh, that's just a ba- <laughs> it's just it's just a backup though because that thing is okay. supposed to be that thing is recording. But like okay. it doesn't always work. So I'm just uh, but right. then because it's there, I'm like I forget. So right. hopefully we don't miss the first ten minutes of this conversation. But anyway, oh yeah. Um, to continue, <laughs> you know when you think about the word pathology, right? And I think about a pathologist in terms of medicine, right? Because that's a person. That's what Doctor right. House was, right? That's right. what he was, right? right? His job was oh, to I find out wrong with people. <laughs> What was interesting about it, although he was technically looking for diagnoses, right? What, obviously he was, he was a jerk and, and so forth, but like under all of that, the issue that he was uncovering was that like, although he wasn't very empathetic about it, he was able to figure out the diagnoses because he understood the people. Right. 
right? And all the people were just like, oh, and this is just went on for eight seasons, but the, you know, basically like they would just look at the test, and the test would say this, and I don't know about this, and then I don't it's know about this, right? Right? And then <laughs> he would notice like this person is behaving strangely. Oh, mm-hmm. it turns out it's because. And I'm trying to remember one of the weird things. Like, actually, what happened is the person actually has, like, recessed testicles or something. It was some weird thing that happened that, like, completely <laughs> changed it, right? And then they wouldn't even – but all they would look at it was the data, you know, the the, the test results. And um, right. they could never get there, right? I mean, every, every so often, like, one of them would get there before him because that was kind of the point, right? But, like, you know, and what – it's fiction, right? But, like – if all it was was reading the test results, then the shows wouldn't work. Right. It would be the show. Right. And I don't know what they're teaching in medical school. Um, I assume based on the doctors I know that they are teaching something like that, which is like, you know, it's not even just bedside manner because that's not a different issue, which is true in speech language and teaching too. Right. It's not just the empathy part. It's, it's like these people are people. Right. And that's what we are emphasized to look at the the whole person. So um, I guess what we do differently is that we're looking at the whole student, all all the factors that may contribute to whatever's, um, quote, hindering them from reaching whatever standard that they're expected to. Yeah. Um, I think about a, a class I had. God, I guess it's four years ago now when I was in my second year of adoptional program. And, you know, our first big assignment, we were supposed to be all you do, which is kind of annoying after a while, is that all you do for the first several years of your doctorate is like propose studies that you don't do. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you can keep proposing the same thing and tweaking it and then eventually do it. But like you don't actually get to do it until you're doing your doctorate. Right. (laughs) I mean, you can work on other people's studies, but you get my point is it's a lot of fake studies. Right. They got to be realistic. They have to be possible. Um, but you're just practicing and after several years, it's just, it's, it's annoying. But anyway, while I was still in that stage of my, my degree, I had this one class, bad class and, um, it could have been okay, but it was about like actual like change within institutions. Like what? So in, in concept, it's fine. Right. Um, but it was about like, how do you actually change institutions? Right. You know, what, what can you do? Which is interesting because I ended up writing about that to some extent in my, in my doctorate, but I mean, sorry, in my dissertation, but yeah. So anyway, the point is we had an assignment that was like supposed to be our initial proposal and then we were supposed to develop it throughout the semester and then present it to the class. Um, so these are group projects and you know, I hate a group project, but I, I like these people. So we got together and we all, not a very long assignment. So we all wrote like a page, right? And, um, you know, some of my classmates didn't have perfect grammar, which I didn't care. Yeah. But the professor, who wasn't white, but he also wasn't black, um, was taking points away for the grammar being incorrect. Right? Oh, that's terrible. And it's just like, but you knew what they meant. It's not a grammar class. Right? I get that knee-jerk response in my head when I see grammar that doesn't line up because I, you know, I was trained in it. I get, I see something that right. doesn't, you know, they left an S off. And if, unless, but unless I'm teaching them grammar, because if I'm teaching them grammar, well, yeah, I'm going to grade them on the grammar because that's what the class is, that's right? That's what the class is. That's the right. point of the class, yeah. But exactly the point is that, for example, this semester I was teaching uh prospective speech-language pathologists and teachers. Right. And, um, you know, we, the assign, most of the assignments, because it was an asynchronous class, most of the assignments were like discussion board stuff. Right. They did have to write a paper eventually. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it came to the paper and a lot of them, English wasn't their first language. Right. And if I really wanted to just pick at it, I could have taken points off for this and this. But in the syllabus, I did not say I will take points off for grammar. Right. I'm not saying it's a good idea to ever do that, but if you're going to take points off of grammar, you better put it in the syllabus and say, like, the grammar is, you know, something <laughs> I care way too much about or something. It has to be, like, an expectation that you set, not right. something that you're inherently <laughs> expecting out of people who haven't... Right. And yeah. I just, like... Because when I wanted to say to the guy, and I did write to the professor, and I don't know if it mattered or... uh he just stopped caring after that because he didn't take any points away in the final. 
uh, paper. Although, so the thing is, like, I, I was like, I could try to prove a point here, but like at that point, I was getting up all in my head that I was going to get like uh, straight A's through my program, which I eventually did. And I was like, I don't want to fight with this guy to the point where I'm going to lose <laughs> my my perfect record, like just to prove right. a point. Right. And also, <laughs> I wanted them to get their A's too. <laughs> right. So I I told them, I'm like, look, I'll just edit it. It's annoying. I just edited it so that he would leave us, leave us alone. But I just said, right. like, this is like, we are doctoral students. If you get into this program, you're supposed to be trusted with certain things. And I understand that, like, a sixth grader isn't the same. But, like, I still tend to believe up front that people are you know, capable. Right. Right. I uh, will say um, something that I'm planning on doing um, or incorporating into um, my sessions this school year is explicitly teaching academic la- language to the kids, um, especially the the special education kids. They're they always forget. They forget like they're it's it's in their neuro like what is it called it's in their um cognitive functioning like they can't they can't remember it so i've i've looked at these practice tests for the state tests and they're hard and they use all these words like analyze and examine and there's so many nuances in those things where um yeah they really um they struggle with it and i struggled with some of the questions too so how are these kids supposed to do it when I'm here, a full-grown adult who went through um, all this schooling, and I get some of these questions wrong. And I talked to some of their ELA teachers, too, and we're like, yeah, hmm, I'm not sure. It could be this or that. So I don't know. It's that it's that academic language that they're, like, pushing from from elementary school that's like, oh, it's tough. And for them to have to do that and also the grammar and also the, the spelling and also – all of this, all of that at the same time. I can't remember how it was like when we were in elementary, middle school, but I don't know. This is, it's a, it's a tough world for them. Yeah. See, I think sometimes people, what people don't understand about academic language is not just jargon. Every industry has jargon, right? Yeah. You know, I'm not saying jargon is good or bad, but like every industry is going to have specialized terms that refer to things in the industry that are not necessarily meant to be understood by people outside the industry. Right. I'm not saying that that is bad, but I'm not so up in arms about the fact that there is specialized language and that you simply, as you go farther into it, will learn more. That's fine. My issue is with stuff that when people use common words, Right. With a generally accepted definition. Mm -hmm. But they use them in a specific way within an industry. Yes, that's confusing. Then the people within the industry will use the word outside of the industry without explaining that they're using it in the way the industry uses it. Right. Right. To me, just learning the vocabulary of a particular industry is one thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's learning like. So to me, the greatest example of this is actually in pandemic stuff, right? Because if you actually, I mean, like, if you go and do the research on this, not you, but if anyone listening does the research on (laughs) this, you'll understand that, like, when epidemiologists use the word mild, they don't mean what we mean when we say mild, right? So when they say there is this percentage chance after a mild case, right? If I think mm-hmm. mild, I think the lowest setting on spicy, right? Right. Right? What they mean is like, well, you didn't have to go to the hospital. <laughs> right? Like, that's all it means. <laughs> yeah. You're really sick at home. Yeah. That's a, because they're thinking in triage terms, right? It's like, yeah. well, you didn't need to, to be really treated. I mean, maybe the pill, maybe the Passover or whatever. But I mean, like, you didn't need to go to be seen in the ER, right? right. Um, to them, that's mild, right? So then when, and then people would say, I can't believe they're saying it's mild. I'm like, yeah, because they don't know how to talk. Yeah. <laughs> like they're not lying. <laughs> they just they just forgot that the word mild to other people is like when you go get the salsa that's mild, it's not spicy. Right. <laughs> like it's the lowest setting. And that, that reminds me of um 
when I was talking to my friends um, who don't have much um, experience with like medical background per se, um, but we were saying something about how a particular thing can be chronic. And I was like, yeah, you know, like chronic, long lasting because of that, um, because of that medical background. <laughs> and then there, my friends were like, Oh, actually, I never knew that's what it meant. I always thought it meant something intense because of, because of chronic, <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, that's chronic just means that it's not going away, right? Like, and it doesn't, you know, or I'm sure this is a specific definition of how long it has to be, whatever. But I mean, just like, you know, something can be chronic and not that painful. Yeah, yeah. So they they were like, oh, I always thought it meant something like that was like super intense. (laughs) And I was like, oh, no, no, no. It just means it's like long lasting. (laughs) Yeah, I got glaucoma and eczema. They're not going away, but most of the time it's fine. Right? Yeah. You know? Um, And... You know, it's also like when you hear people, but I mean, we're talking about medical stuff because it's obviously the medicalized version of disability. I mean, like, that's a bit, it's very related to the, the language thing because people are using this, this, you know, these, you know, uh, this framework mm-hmm. for people and their communication, right? So, you know, there's that, you know, I think of other words like this, um, and I, I hope, I hope if they accept it, um, if they accept the proposal, which I will know by the time this episode actually comes out, but you mm-hmm. know, it's not coming out for like a month. So whatever, <laughs> yeah. um, because I want to write about this and how academics, you know, they're so far inside of their bubble that they, they, they just genuinely are confused when this happens sometimes that, you know, and they do understand that language can get, become more colloquial and so forth, but that's not really what this is. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's a different meaning. And then it becomes an issue because if you don't get that training, which most people do not have access to. Right. Not only do they not have access to the schools because not everybody gets into these programs, obviously, I'm not necessarily blaming people for that part. But, you know, they put it in journals. Nobody can read either literally because they don't have access or also because they write in such a way that nobody's ever going to read it. Right. Um, I know the, the first thing I thought it was like. Oh, because you have to pay for it. <laughs> right. There's that. Like, there's both yeah. of them. And it's not just pay. It's pay exorbitant amounts of money to the point where they only want schools to buy them in, in both right. membership form. Right? Um, and so there's that. And then you think about the fact that, like, these things, you know, I just think academics inability I, I always end up talking about this on this show even though I'm not really talking it wasn't really about that but I do think it's a big part yeah. of the problem the language right is it's, that, it's related uh, yeah it's yeah, absolutely related that, you know the medical the med- medical language or di- diagnostic language or whatever for really anything and especially education or, or therapy or whatever uh obviously therapy is a medical you know what I mean um is is um I think if used incorrectly, it can be very harmful. If you are going to do that, because like I think about this in terms of my actual job, right, which is in nonprofit lending, and I, I still do education, but like um, the the employer, the thing behind my head, um, does nonprofit lending. And one of the issues I came, came into for the curriculum that I've redesigned is that a lot of the people, these are uh, people of color mostly, um, who well, actually exclusively um, in the programs we run. Um, well, racial or ethnic minorities, right? I guess you could look white, but be something else. So you you get what I'm saying. Uh, they they didn't necessarily all get a chance to go get the MBA or go get the the actual studies where you would learn all the terminology very precisely, right? So they use the things colloquially. And then they get in front of the people who might give them money and the people who might give them money think that they don't know what they're talking about. Right. Because in some ways they don't because they're using the words wrong. Like, it's, and they, and they, um, and, and then with, with some of these things, especially financially, you do have to be very precise with these terms because they mean different things. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's not really their fault. And it's the way that like an economist or whoever will write in ways that nobody wants to read. So nobody reads it. Right. And then they just talk to people they know. And these things become like a game of telephone. Right. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about in this case is people is specifically cash flow comes up a lot. 
Cash flow in accounting terms is a very specific thing. I can't even really explain what it means um, because it's not intuitive. Yes, it means the flow of cash. But what I mean is what is considered an inflow and what is considered an outflow, I cannot tell you aside from like revenue. <laughs> like I cannot tell yeah. you because like certain things that you wouldn't even think are cash are considered cash flow, right? So it's really the way cash flows, but it's just that you wouldn't expect that cash would be flowing the way that you think it is. But people use the phrase cash flow to mean everything in the conversations I'm in. They're like, oh, you know, I got to make sure I increase my cash flow. I'm like, do you mean revenue? Right? Do you mean profit? Yeah. You know? Uh, I don't blame the people for that. So, like, we added it to our classes we're doing because people need to understand these things. And the thing is the lenders, and I don't necessarily mean the lenders who I work with, but just lenders out in the world – will judge you even if they're doing it, you know, subconsciously, right? They're, they're not writing the person's grammar down when they're judging their loan, right? But if they have a thing in their head where they where because they were taught more traditionally about the terms mm-hmm. and they hear someone using the word wrong, you understand what this person means, but they're like, uh, and, and, you know, yeah. especially for someone who might have less money in the first place, right? You're going to have to, Think very highly of them to, to stretch, right? Which is fine, uh, but you, you know, if you are t- trained in in this specialized language, you know, there's that. And then I think of that too when I go back to the pandemic stuff. There are a lot of people because I spend way too much time talking to freaking academics, um, <laughs> and I was on the computer talking to academics the whole time, which is not necessarily a bad thing because all my writing ended up happening that way. But right. also because a lot of academics don't know how to talk to people who aren't academics, they will really sometimes look down their nose at, at people. Um, especially white academics will look down their nose at people for not understanding certain things. And I'm like, yeah, you went to school forever, like for too many years. <laughs> of course you understand all of it, you know? And um, I think it really becomes a problem. And it's only something who the handful of people who listen to my podcast, only people who might care about this, just because you have to both be someone who's sympathetic to things we're talking about and also have the training that I have to understand what I'm talking about. But I try to make it so that people can understand what I'm saying. Um, because what, what good is it if people can't understand what you're saying? Right. And you're someone who has the capacity to be understood. So it's not like, it's just your choice to not be understood, be opaque. Right. <laughs> that's, um, that's interesting that you bring that up because, um, there is a whole thing with, um, with school, um speech speech teachers where um we have to write so okay so we go through all this schooling all this grad school and they teach us the the terminology to use and what we're specifically talking about um regarding the kid and um their performance and then we get into the school system and all of a sudden it's wait no, we have to start writing um, in a way that the, the parents and teachers can all understand what you're talking about, because like you said, there's different like jargon terminology that sounds like something, but means something else. Um, so that's been kind of a, a weird transition for me also, where it's like, OK, on one hand, um, I have to like gauge um, what teacher or what parent I'm talking to, because um Oh, so here's another thing. So I'm, I'm not white. I'm a, I'm a woman. And also I'm small. I look very young. And so I feel like sometimes, um, for people to take what I have to say seriously, I have to like throw in some of those words so that they can be like, Oh, even though I don't understand what they're saying, I, I know what this, or this person knows what they're talking about. So I, I'm trying to find like this balance where I'm putting in some of that and then also making it easy for them to understand in the way that I'm understanding it. Um, but also who has time for that? Like there is no time to write these, like these notes and these reports and um, we have to include all these things, know the the audience and that's also a big thing about communication too. This is something that um I'm I I know how I'm gauging who I'm talking to, knowing my audience. But it's different to be able to teach that to my student too, like 
they also have to know their audience for who they're talking to. And um, when I'm helping them with like their homework or their assignments, it's like um, writing responses to these questions based on certain excerpts. And we, we were trained in that because we went through this whole academia thing. Like we're, we're exposed to that, but um, to be 13 or like not even, they're like, 11, 10, and they're um, writing their equivalent of academic responses. And I'm like, okay, so now we have to, like, think of who we're talking to, because the way you're writing this response now is as though you're talking. And, yeah, we, like, for for me, going back to the, the most important thing for me is that we understand what they're saying, what they're trying to say. Um, and I'm already here trying to be like, okay, so you were able to tell me your, um, what you're thinking, um, when saying it out loud. And then the hard part for them is remembering what they said out loud and putting it onto paper because like it gets, um, I feel like what they put on paper is, very simplified compared to what they said out loud and it's once I'm able to get what they said into their written response I'm like okay cool great that was fantastic and then they turn it in and it's like oh nope this um there's no punctuation the spelling's off this and that this and that and I'm like but look what they did (laughs) I don't know I'm like it's it's a does that make sense? I felt I felt I feel like that was all over the place. <laughs> yeah, well, so am I. Um, I think you know what I learned. I I had I don't know that I always wanted to get a doctorate, but I know at some point I had I had thoughts of it because mostly because I started to hear people I knew were getting them, and I was like, yeah, yeah maybe. Um, still in the back of my head. Huh? <laughs> it's still in the back of my head, but I'm in the hesitation period right now. Well, I mean, I was, you know, around your age when I started. So, you know, it's not like you're late or anything. Um, but I hesitated because from what I had read, and I had only read certain academic articles, like, I, just, I was just like, I can't write like this. And I say this a lot on this podcast, but I realized as I got into it and I was assigned these things, I was like, oh, they're not better than I am at much of anything. They're trained in certain things and they have more experience. I'm not saying that people don't have training and they don't have skills. They do, especially in things that, you know, I've been doing it for longer. Like I'm not trying to disrespect people for that, but I just mean like they're not inherently more capable than I am. Right. They're not inherently more capable than anybody, you know? And when I started being exposed to different writing, cause there's, you know, academics, especially in the disability justice field and in race and so forth, who are just really trying to challenge the language Especially, you know, I said, oh, I'm going to do that. Right. And. Um, and it's interesting. That. Most of the critiques and I say this a lot, but it's still true and it's related to this. Most of the critiques I get are, are I so rarely get critiques on the arguments I'm making. I do not think my arguments are unimpeachable. Like I. I, I try to second guess myself as I write the article. I usually put the second guesses in the article, which I, it's kind of like the eight mile thing where I just try to say what they're going to say about me and then they don't have anything to say. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. um, but, but that's also a great way to build an argument. So that's right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so anyway, when they come after me, it's always form and style. Right. You know, this is not the way that this is supposed to look, basically. Right? And Why didn't you conform to the way we're supposed to do things? <laughs> right. And, like, there was this one, and one of the most upsetting ones was um, a couple of years ago, I wrote an article with a friend, and I was solicited for that. Because at this point, I don't write for journals unless people ask me to, right? And I confirm, I'm like, can I write it the way I want to write it? And they say yes. Sometimes they still don't like it. And I'm just like, well, I told you I was going to do it. I don't know why you didn't believe me. Um, <laughs> I, you I told set you the expectation. Yeah. And... Um, so anyway, I do that. And there's one person who was say, saying that the theme was critical anti-racism, right? Fine. Mm-hmm. But then people were saying, 
So the critique was, this does not technically qualify as critical anti-racism. Critical anti-racism has these five tenets. I'm like, seriously? Seriously, right? Um, and I Am told I not them, critiquing? <laughs> yeah. And, and I was just like, do you, but what about the art? Do you disagree with what we said? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, can you just tell us what you think of what we said? Even when people were reviewing my book, occasionally they would say, please cite this extra thing. That makes sense to me. That's that's not like so much critiquing me. That's just helpful, right? You know, read yeah. this art. Yeah. Good. Please do that. But like, nobody will. I don't. Anyway, so that's part one. And then part two is that as soon as I started, as soon as I got the doctorate, and then as soon as I was sort of leading with that, it was remarkable how many, and journals are different because it's blind, right? They don't know my name. But I mean, like, mm-hmm. um, although there's not that many people writing about what I'm writing about, so they could probably figure <laughs> it um, It's like when I write, wrote this article about whiteness and language teaching, it's like, so there's, so it's me. Basically, <laughs> I uh, wonder. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, and um, it's either me or someone who cited me, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying to be arrogant. I'm kind of. It's kind of annoying that I had to be one of the people talking about it. Like I should not have been early in the game. So, uh, but like, it's remarkable how much certain people will listen to me because it says doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also cynically understand that part of the reason I got it is so that people would take me seriously. Yeah. I do think my ideas have evolved. It's not the doctor. It's more the exposure to various things and the fact that I was, you know, I wouldn't have stayed interested in a lot of the reading that I had to do for school had I just been doing it by myself and I wouldn't have access to. So in that sense, which is a big part of the studies, then, you know, yeah. Um, but understanding how much nonsense there is, you know, um, how many academics sort of shoot themselves in the foot by getting so esoteric that, you know, and, and, and they want to be so precious. And, and some of this is advising because a lot of the problem is academics will get advisors who will be very exacting. And so then they get bad advice. And I don't blame them for that, especially because most academics are perpetual students, right? They're people right. Who went to undergrad and then they went to masters and then they did this. And I'm not, I did too. I mean, I didn't go straight. I had a couple of years, but like, obviously I've been to a lot of school. Uh, so I can't be criticized people for being in school for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, they depend on their advisors and mentors because they haven't been the ones in the field per se. I don't, I don't mean field research. I mean, you know what I mean? Um, right. and they'll get bad advice. You know, because I see these, there's this Facebook group that I don't know, I'm, I think I'm still in just out of sheer perverse, perversity. And it doesn't, or did I leave it by now? I don't even remember. Basically, there's, there's this guy who advertises his services as a dissertation editor, which to like make it conform to standards, right? Um, because it is like there's something you do have to do. There are I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying like at a certain point you do have to do you shape it a certain way, right? Your argument can be whatever. You can justify most things, but like you do have to make it look a certain way, which is silly, but whatever. That's the kind of thing I'm like there. I, AI, you do that job. Yeah. Like go do that one. <laughs> right. right. Like that's what I'm like. You do that because this guy doesn't need to have a job doing this. Because right. every so often to advertise his services, he'll post an infographic about like what is in a literature review. Like we need to pay you for this. <laughs> but the economy, people need jobs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but he also just yeah. needs to do something better. Yeah, um, yeah. Because like, you know, also that's that's such a small pool of people, right? There's just not it's that many. It's very specific. <laughs> it's very niche. Yeah. Um. <laughs> And uh anyway, the point is, that's the only thing that happens in that group is people are advertising their very specific services on, you know, but academia creates doubt in people, right? Yeah. It's not actually that different from speech language to get, bring it back to us as we get to the end here, um, because too much of education and training is about telling people what's wrong with them. Yeah. It's not... I always seek to build on what people have, you know, I always seek in what I do. I want it to be learner centered. People say that they don't really mean it. Uh, but I truly mean like, especially because I work with adults, these people know themselves, right? They right. do. 
Um, there are certain things that they don't know, and we can find people or ways to support those things. But like, they know themselves. They are the experts on themselves. The way speech language and language teaching, all these things do is we position experts on the, on the craft, which is what we are, as being experts on the people, which was, which we cannot be to the extent that the person themselves is. That's what I'm saying when I'm talking about fixing, fixing kids is like, we need to stop thinking we are experts on the people we are supposed to be helping. Right. Every person is different. It's always a a learning opportunity. And when we have these molds that we assume that these kids fit in, then that's a disservice to the kid because they, some of them don't know themselves which is the big difference between the the children and the adults, but some of them do. And you have to hone into those strengths in order to support what else they need. Right. Um. Oh man. And we're, we're nearing the end. We didn't even get to like (laughs) the actual speech part of speech. (laughs) Where, um, similar to what you were saying that, um, with quote pathologizing these these kids it's no matter how objective you try to be it's still very subjective um i know there's a lot of um cases that i've seen where uh they have maybe like an articulation thing but it's a uh, uh this is like a whole whole new can of worms that we can um <laughs> We can spend like another hour talking about like their um their their accent was too strong and so um suddenly they have a uh phonological disorder, you know, like it's uh the whole difference versus disorder thing, but also like I feel like especially in a general education classroom setting, I think more likely than not it's or more Likely than not, it's not going to be a disorder. You know, <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> like, if it's a very specific medical issue, sure. But in the in the general classroom, I I, I don't think that's um what we're seeing. I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, because this is the first article I wrote was about this sort of altruistic stuff. And I've written about the altruism thing a few times or the supposed altruism is that it's really hard to get people to change. If you, if they think that they're the heroes in the story. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when people tell stories like I did this thing and my student was able to, you know, pronounce this clearly or, you know, say things differently. And that's great. But I'm just like, you really think, that they're not going to face discrimination now because of what you did. I'm not saying don't help them, right? Because when I say this, people get defensive. They're like, well, just don't do anything. And I'm like, that's not what I said. That is not not what you said at all. (laughs) You know, but people take it that way. It's like when I say that the English teaching industry is messed up, we shouldn't teach English. I'm like, that's not what I said. Like there's a part of my book where I say that specifically, but people don't people don't read the whole book, right? So uh because I address that specifically. I'm just yeah. like I didn't say that. I'm saying we should tr- do it differently. Um and the same thing with this. I am not saying there shouldn't be speech language therapists and they, yeah, we should change it from pathology to therapist fine, but if the people still have the hero mindset, then it really doesn't matter what it's called, right? Like sure, it should be better at name, but like you could do things well with the bad name. Like I said at the very beginning of this, you can do things well with a bad name or you can do things terribly with a good name should we make the name better sure but that's that's a step one right you know it's like changing english language learners well it was like esl then it was ell now it's mll it's like yeah okay but you're still treating them the same way right so is is it better to call them multilingual yes sure that's better it's not like bad to do these things it's just those optics you know this is not to say optics don't matter. They're just not everything. Optics do matter, right? And then when people, because again, academics get like, like, or any also people who are agree with me politically, because I'm very far to the left in a lot of ways, right? Will say like, this is just optics, and it's like if you think that optics don't matter, then I, uh, okay, fine. 
go go do any job if you think optics don't matter because they do matter. <laughs> optics do matter. That's that's what we've been saying about like using doctor, using pathologist. Optics do matter to a certain extent. Right. Um. So, I, I mean, I, you know, I because I have a friend. He doesn't listen to this, but if he does, maybe he'll maybe he'll grow up. You know. <laughs> And I'm at the end of the story, which doesn't seem anything to do with language, but it's about optics, and then we'll close. Okay. So he keeps saying things that are true, like technically true, but did you have to say them? Right? Yeah. Like the things he's saying are not offensive. As an example, and I years ago he was he would point out on Facebook or wherever, right, that. The specific wage gap between men and women is incorrect. With, like the off quote statistic of it being, I don't know, 60 something or whatever percent, right? It's whatever. Total, it, yeah, yeah. It's incorrect because it's poorly measured and they don't, they, it's kind of sloppy and that the actual thing is more like 74, whatever. It's like, it's, it's a slightly smaller gap than the general percentage says. It's like, but why do you need to say that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Still cool. Not the gap equal. is there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get that if you're going to be using that as evidence, you should get it right because then someone can point out that it's wrong and you'll look silly and it'll it'll work, you know. But yeah. like, if you're just saying it, you don't need to go and be like, actually. Yeah. Because it's like what he, like like he's he's factually correct. But spiritually so wrong. And in the it's same like an way intense that, like, thing. Yeah. It's the same yeah. thing where he's been talking about mansplaining recently. And it's like, just like most therapy language, mansplaining has turned into more than what it technically means. Because technically mansplaining is supposed to be over-talking a female expert about something that she knows more about. Right? Right. Not just a man being condescending. Right? But if you are explaining it that way... <laughs> it's just yeah. condescending. So why? Yeah. You know, and it's like it's not really a bad thing if people are less condescending, even if the word has been diluted. There are certain things that I think it's a problem have been diluted, like a lot of real therapy language. Like we we got to stop calling every lie gaslighting because because it's not because that it makes actual gaslighting seem less serious than it is. Right. It's like an actual plan, right? You, you can't lie. You can't gaslight off the top of your head. Like it's a plan. Right? Yeah. Um, and the same thing with Karen, like that was specifically a word referring to racist white women met weaponizing the state against black and brown people. So now we just use it for like women we don't like. I'm like, that's a problem. I have a whole episode <laughs> three years ago. But um, so anyway, thank you for joining me. This, you know, people who listen to this like, why? He didn't talk about that. But all these things are related. That's the point. They're, they're all related. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and uh, I hope you continue to. You know, push against these aspects of the field, no matter what it chooses to call itself. Uh, the important thing is how the kids are treated. And, uh, well, they need to be treated better. Agreed. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been fun.